Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, March 14th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. Justin Vogt, Managing Editor of Foreign Affairs Magazine, interviews Elliot Abrams on his book, Realism and Democracy, American Foreign Policy After the Arab Spring. And now, enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming. I'm Justin Vogt. I'm Managing Editor of Foreign Affairs. Welcome to the New York Historical Society. We're going to have a great conversation tonight. We are very, very lucky to have with us uh, my colleague at the Council on Foreign Relations, Elliot Abrams. Uh, Elliot is a senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at CFR, and in his role as an expert and an analyst, commentator on world affairs, he's written a number of books, including his most recent, which is Realism and Democracy. We'll be talking a bit about that book tonight. Uh, the basis of his expertise is a really fascinating career that uh, involves two different Republican administrations. It spans three decades. Uh, as you know, he was in the Reagan administration as Assistant Secretary of State and later as Assistant Secretary for Inter-American Affairs and then was in the George W. Bush administration where as Deputy, uh, uh, Deputy uh, National Security Advisor, he supervised U.S. policy in the Middle East. Um, now, as most of you know, uh, Elliot is a, a somewhat polarizing figure in some circles. Uh, he's known for having very strong opinions and making fierce arguments. And he's known to get into some heated disputes. If I'm not careful, we might find ourselves in, in some later today. <laughs> uh, he's usually classified as a, a neoconservative. Now, that term has been stripped of almost all of its meaning in, in recent decades uh, and is now just sort of hurled lazily. Uh, mostly by people on the left like me at anyone they disagree with. But it, it actually does have a meaning, and I think Eliot embodies uh, to a, a high degree what it, what it originally meant. Eliot's someone who believes in democracy and free markets uh, and in the transformative potential of uh, American power and American force. Um, That's a good summary. Not bad. Thanks. But also skeptical of international organizations and maybe lacking some patience for realpolitik. Fair enough? Okay, good. A real, a real definition. Um, as someone who's on well to Eliot's left, I often disagree with him, uh, as you'll probably see. But his analysis and his arguments always force me to reassess my own assumptions and often push me to uh, different conclusions than I had initially reached. So some of you here tonight are maybe fans of Eliot's and are inclined to agree with him. Uh, for you, I'm sure he'll throw out plenty of red meat and you'll uh, delight in seeing me attempt to parry uh, with this, his mind. Uh, those of you who are here who are inclined to uh, disagree with or maybe even dislike what Eliot has to say, I urge you to keep an open mind. Uh, if you're thinking about the issues we're going to be talking tonight is not at least complicated by what he has to say, you're not listening closely enough. So let's get started. Uh, let's just jump into it. Thanks so much, Eliot, for doing well, thank this. Thank you. Um, one of the things I really enjoyed about your book uh, is that the first part of it, the introduction, is, this, is a really, it's a long introduction. It's almost maybe a third of the book. And it's this sort of 
It's like an intellectual, uh, professional autobiography in which you trace the history of democracy promotion and mm-hmm. of the neoconservative strain in U.S. thinking, sort of by telling your own story. We can't tell that whole story tonight, but I, I would love to start by just asking, you know, where do you come from? Where did you come from? How did you come to be Elliot Abrams, neoconservative expert on policy? What were the experiences that sort of shaped that worldview, and how do you kind of see yourself as a as a player or even a partisan in this fight over U.S. policy? <clears throat> well, I um, started as what I'd call a, a Cold War Democrat uh, in the tradition of uh, Truman, Kennedy, Johnson, um, and then Hubert Humphrey, Scoop Jackson. And I entered the scene actually supporting uh, Scoop Jackson, uh, the late Senator Henry M. Jackson, uh, who ran for president of Washington State, ran for president in 72 in, uh, kind of as preparation for a serious run in 76. As you may know, he didn't win. Right. Um, but this was the argument in the Democratic Party at that time. The party of, uh, you know, Kennedy and Johnson and Humphrey um, and George Meany at the AFL-CIO uh, was, from our point of view, then uh, taken over by... Um, uh, the new left, George McGovern. Um, and Jackson and some others, um, these names may or may not be familiar, Edmund Muskie, uh, Hubert Humphrey ran, but they lost. And McGovern was, of course, the, the nominee. Um, then Carter, and Carter actually ran. We thought, okay, now we've got the party back because Carter, you know, Southern governor, uh, Navy captain, but that's not how he governed. He governed more or less as a, we thought, as a McGovernite. Um, and so for those of us, um, Gene Kirkpatrick, Admiral Zumwalt, Max Campbellman, Ben Wattenberg, um, most of them no longer alive, um, we um, had a problem in 1980. We weren't going to support, weren't inclined to support Carter. Um, and then uh, the president um, very mistakenly reached out to meet with all of us. And after 15 minutes with Jimmy Carter, we were all for Reagan. Um, So uh, I um, entered, as Gene Kirkpatrick did, the Reagan administration. And and many of us, I I think I'd say most of us, moved to the Republican Party. And this was 90%, I'd say, foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Um, For most of us, that was the the key issue, and we felt, I still feel this way, that we had not changed our views and um, therefore left the Democratic Party, but rather that we had kept the same views on foreign policy again, Mm. um, but that the party had moved. You talk about changing views. You've been in this game now for many decades. What, What has changed? I mean, how you talk about the party leaving you, you didn't change, you were consistent where have you moved and, you know, how what, this book that you wrote now, if you, it's different than the book that you would have written 10, 20, 30 years ago. How have you shifted? You know, on foreign policy, I'm, um, I'm tempted to say, <coughs> of course, my positions were all correct 20, 30, 40 years ago. Therefore, why would I change? Um, I'm not so sure. I mean, I've come to some different conclusions um, watching, well, Iraq, for example, most recently, um, <clears throat> about what the United States can and should do, can't, can't do, 
um, the fundamental view, and you summarized it really, the view that American power um, is a good thing and can be used for, for many beneficial um, results. Um, I am struck by the fact that the, there, was, there was a time when support for expansion of democracy and human rights was reasonably popular. Um, actually, in, in both parties, mm-hmm. if you go back, say, to the 80s, uh, the Reagan days. Now it is unpopular in both parties to a large degree. That's a big change. But um, in um, in American politics, I would, you know, I, again, I don't, I actually don't think I've changed very much. I'd say the one thing, one thing that I've learned is, and, and Iraq is what really brought this <coughs> mostly uh, to my mind. If you think of... Um, the transition in, let's say, Russia, 1917, um, Cuba, 59, Iran and Nicaragua, 79, Iraq, when we invaded Iraq. Um, these were all terrible transitions in which, from a human rights point of view, things got worse. Sure. There were some other transitions, which we did, let's say, in the Reagan years, um, Philippines, South Korea, Chile, that worked great from a, from a democracy point of view. And what, So what's the difference? And the conclusion I have come to is the difference is chaos. That's the difference. If there is no law and order, if the situation becomes chaotic, the worst people who are often the toughest and best organized will jump in and take over, whether it's the Bolsheviks or it's Khomeini. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't let that happen, you've got a real shot. I mean, so that is a lesson for me about if we ever have to do this again, how do you do it more successfully? Sure, although that, in some sense that sort of just shifts it from being something else to being chaos. Well, how do you prevent the chaos? That becomes the real question. Well, you don't let the... I mean, I think there is an answer, which is that in most places there are um, forces of order, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> and you don't let them fall apart. So, for example, Chile, um, uh, Pinochet's forced to step aside as president. You know who the head of the army in Chile was? Constitutionally, for 10 years, Augusto Pinochet. The army's there. Um, Chun Doo-hwan leaves as president of South Korea, but, you know, South Korean army's still there. Uh, Philippines, Marcos leaves, but Fidel Ramos, later president, is the head of the army law and order. Um, the army totally collapsed in Iran. In Iraq, we collapsed the army. Mm-hmm. We did it deliberately. And I think one could make a very good argument that that was a fateful turning point. Right. Let's, let's get to this. this that kind of segues to the basic argument in the book, I think, which involves more than just preventing chaos, but is sort of your, I don't know, a culminating thesis uh, as a student of, of this policy on how to do this. How to, what, for in a nutshell, what's the argument you're making in this book? And, because it's one you've been developing over years. <laughs> well, the argument is, the reason for the title Realism and Democracy is, look, <clears throat> if you're a big supporter of um, democracy and human rights and you're active in of human rights or amnesty or human rights, but you don't need an argument. You're there. I'm trying to make an argument that from a real politique point of view, we should be supporting democracy and human rights. Because, particularly in the Middle East, <clears throat> because you will not defeat Islamist extremism with, if I can put it this way, merely um, tyranny and repression. I, mean, I would argue, first of all, tyranny is a form of extremism. And anyway, there is a battle of ideas out there. Every society, but we're talking now about Islamic societies, has to have this debate. What's justice? 
What's freedom? How does the Quran tell us to organize our lives and our society? What does God want of us? They're going to have that debate. And policemen can't win it. Policemen can jail you, they can hit you over the head and kill you, but they're not going to win the debate. The debate will be run, will be won in a political context or it'll be lost. But it, it, the debate has to take place. So we have to, I would argue, promote um, a more open political system in, in those countries. And the, I, just to take, the, in a sense, the most important example, Egypt, most important because it's the most populous Arab yeah. country, you know, there's 50,000 political prisoners, 50,000. They're about to have an election. It's a completely fraudulent election. It's a Putin election. No one serious is being permitted to run against President Sisi. 50,000 people in prison who have either not ever been convicted of a crime, ever, they haven't had a trial, or they've been convicted of, of you know, insulting the president or insulting the army. What is going to happen to them in prison? They're going to sit there, unjustly in prison, listening to debates between the ISIS guys and the Muslim Brotherhood guys and the Al-Qaeda guys. And they'll choose one. You know, so this is a jihadi manufacturing machine. So I say from a real politique point of view, we should be concerned about that. Even if you don't care about human rights, you should be concerned about that. Of course you should be concerned. The question is, what you're basically saying is it's worse now in Egypt than it was under Mubarak. It is. How did we get in this situation? In your book, you basically argue that almost at every step in the past couple of decades, the U.S. has made the wrong choice right. on, on Egypt, with, with the exception, I think, of one short period. Two years. Yeah, where you happened to be involved. <laughs> now, well, it wasn't so, me. It was right, present. okay. But, but, tell, but let's talk about that, because Egypt is a fascinating case. What was, what was the Bush administration doing right at first, then did wrong, and, and, and let's talk about what happened at each step, because it's easy to say, we need to be concerned about this, it's bad. Well, we've been concerned about it, it's been bad. What went wrong? Well, <clears throat> overall U.S. policy in Egypt, go back to Sadat, uh, has been unconcerned about the internal situation in Egypt, unconcerned about the lack of democracy, human rights abuses. After 9-11, um, President Bush had to face the question, why did this happen? What's going on here in the Arab world? And there were a variety of answers offered. I mean, the State Department offered the answer. It's they hate us because we're too pro-Israel. Um, predictable State Department answer. President Bush did not accept that. And he uh, took the answer that was being promoted by, uh, by then, by a lot of Arab intellectuals. For example, UN Development Program's 2002 Arab Human Development Report talked about a freedom deficit. That was Bush's view, basically. And he began to push Mubarak, particularly, I'd say, 2004 to 6. For example, there was a presidential election in 2005. But Mubarak had actually never been elected president of Egypt. He was chosen by the parliament. They never had an election. So we pushed him and pushed him, and finally, he agreed to have an election. And there was an opponent. Now, he jailed the opponent the day after the election. I'm a Noor. But there was an opponent. What did we think we were doing? We thought, you know, he was about 75, if I remember right at that time, maybe 77. Um, We thought, well, this is not a real election, but it's a start. And next time, he won't run. And next time, we won't have to um, use our pressure to get an election, but rather to make it a, a more real election, a more honest election. Um, and it worked. So he, he had that election. And if you talk to people in uh, the press in Egypt or human rights groups or the Muslim Brotherhood, they will say, yes, mm-hmm. those were better years. 
We had more freedom in those years. After about 2006, uh, or in about 2006, we stopped. It's not clear why. Some people will say it was because you had an election in Palestine and Hamas won, and then you guys all said, we don't want any more elections. We're going to talk about that. I don't think that's right. I think it was more that um, President Bush was paying less attention because he was mostly paying attention to the surge. Mm -hmm. Secretary Rice wanted an Israeli-Palestinian peace deal and thought she could get one and that it would be great for the country, for the president, for her. Um, And if you're trying very hard to negotiate an Israeli-Palestinian peace, you need Egypt. You need Mubarak and his foreign minister, so stop yammering at them about human rights and start pulling them into this. I think that's more the answer. But anyway, we did pull back. Mm -hmm. Um, And except for that two-year period, no concern. And I would say that's true of uh, the early Bush administration. I'd say it was true of Clinton. It was true of... Obama, and it is true of Trump administration. There is really not much concern about the internal situation. What should have happened, what should the U.S. have done in the aftermath of the uprising against Mubarak that we didn't well, do? Because you're, you're critical of Obama's reaction both to that and then to each of What yeah, was the I alternative? Say, I, I am critical, but not the way, I mean, in the Arab world, everybody will tell you, you guys, meaning you Americans, through President Mubarak under the bus. You're an ally for 30 years, you threw him under the bus. This is a completely false accusation against the Obama administration. And my answer to them has been, you know, so a million or five million Egyptians go into the street. What do you think a president of the United States is going to do? He's going to say, um, you know, you know, Hosni, the answer is Tiananmen Square. If you just shoot a couple of thousand of them, then they'll all go home. We're not going to say that. No American president is going to say that. Well, Sisi tried that essentially a couple of years later, didn't he? He did. And he what did. did we do? Nothing. And I think what the Obama administration did, you know, two weeks before Mubarak fell, both Vice President Biden and Secretary of State Clinton were saying, this is a stable situation. So they didn't know what they were doing, mm-hmm. really. Um, we did not then push for democracy. Um, I mean, for example, we, we, wouldn't, we didn't call it a coup, remember? We didn't call it a coup. We should have said, this is a military coup. You can say, this is a military coup, but the people of Egypt seem to want it. A military coup against Hitler in the 30s would have been a very good thing. Not all coups are bad. So first, we didn't call it a coup. Then we put no pressure on uh, Morsi after he won to be a Democrat. We were really pretty silent. So then he's removed by the army. Then comes Sisi. There is no American, no is an exaggeration. There is very little, I think, American human rights pressure on Sisi. President Trump did one thing, which is to get um, Aya Hijazi, an American dual right. citizen, uh, and her husband out of prison. But uh, as in the Obama years, there's just not much interest in the internal situation. And I'm afraid that what's going to happen now is he's going to have this fake election. Uh, you know, and all the serious people, including two former, well, one former chief of staff of the Army, wanted to run against him. You know, they're either disqualified or jailed. Right. Um, I am afraid that we're going to immediately uh, uh, congratulate uh, President Sisi for his great victory in this election, which we should not do. But this is, you know, this is, you know, 35 years yeah. of basically ignoring the internal situation. You, you alluded earlier to the 2006 
election. Hamas. And Hamas have fucked up. Let's talk about that a little bit because that is a, it's often overlooked. People have sort of, it, it's been a little bit buried in, in history. And I think it's actually a really interesting right. test case yeah. for a lot of your ideas. And, and you were involved in, in the run-up and the aftermath. Just to refresh people's memories, 2006, Bush administration pushes Mahmoud Abbas to, uh, uh, no? Uh, hold it. Oh, wow, hold already? It. Already. <laughs> How could you say something? No. Okay. Um, Arafat dies in the fall of 2004. Right. Uh, the Fatah party chooses Mahmoud Abbas to be his replacement. He wanted a presidential election, which was then held very soon, January 2005. Okay. Why did he want one? Legitimacy. Legitimacy. And it was a good election. It was a high turnout election. And he had several opponents who said, this guy's no good. He won about 65% of the vote, which is to say it wasn't a, you know, 99%. Sure. Um, so then they said, okay, this is great. So let's have a parliamentary election now. We'll do it again. Um, in June, we're now in 2005. They weren't ready. So they decided, let's we'll postpone. Push it back. Yeah. We'll push it back to January 2006, which is when it was held. So um, you will, a lot of people say that we, the United States, Bush, forced them to have an election against their will. It isn't true. They wanted to have an election. It is the case that in the very last days before the election, when finally the Fatah guys figured out, you know what, we could lose. We're going to lose, yeah. Then they, then they started saying, better call the election off. Well, we weren't going to do that. Right. Hamas wins, sort of handily. Uh, um, not, I mean, yeah, I know. The, the 44 small... to 41% popular vote. Sure. But the way the system worked, right. huge victor, huge in, uh, in, in the parliament. Now, at that point, tell me about what the administration decides to do, because this is a sort of contentious issue, and I want to ask you yeah. that. The, 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 what I understand is that there's an effort to try to get Abbas and the Palestinian Authority to uh, really kind of prevent the uh, Hamas-led government from, from taking form and, and, and proceeding. <clears throat> well, this is, it's a really interesting uh, example because... Here you have an armed group, which to the EU and U.S. is a terrorist group. Hamas is a listed terrorist group. Sure. Should they be allowed to run? This is the first question. Should they be allowed to run? And there were people who said no. Uh, the National Democratic Institute. What did you say? Um, I said yes, and I was wrong. Uh, this was a mistake. Um, NDI, a National Democratic Institute president, Ken Wallach, said they should not be allowed to run. No terrorist group should be allowed to run unless they lay down their arms. And you're setting a bad precedent. We have the Kosovo Liberation Army, and this will happen again. But the Palestinians said, President Abbas said, look, who's the opposition to Fatah? Sure. They are. So if you don't let them run, this is a, you know, a Syrian election, Egyptian election, where you, there's no real competition. They have to be allowed to run. So uh, what do we do with this? Well, um, in the quartet, that's... Condi Rice, Kofi Annan, basically thinking about what do we do here? They came up with a view, which is summed up in the word ultimately. No, armed groups can't be in a democratic system. You can't have bullets and ballots. You choose one or the other. Ultimately, ultimately, you have to make that choice. You're in or out of the democratic system. But you can run. It was implicit you can't implicit, not explicit, but you can't serve. Mm-hmm. See, then you have to lay down your arm. Um, and this was a fine way to go about it because it was obvious to everyone that they couldn't possibly win. The Israelis, the CIA, the Palestinians, the politics, no possible way um, till the last few days. Um, so then they win. And we're sitting there thinking, now what do we do? 
And the answer was supplied not on policy grounds, but by lawyers. Um, the, mostly the Treasury Department lawyers who enforce sanctions against terrorist groups, who came to us and said, you do know, by the way, that should you choose to meet with Hamas or continue to aid the Palestinian Authority, we will arrest you. I mean, I exaggerated a little bit, but, mm-hmm. but it was illegal because it's a parliamentary system. So therefore, the ministries are under the parliament. They report to the parliament. Um, you're giving aid to the Ministry of Health, Ministry of Education. This is Hamas control. Sure. You're helping terrorism. Well, we, were, we had a little bit of a workaround. The president isn't under the control of the parliament. The governors aren't. The secret police aren't, for better or worse. Um, so we, we were able to continue some relationship. Um, I think it's clear now, <clears throat> in retrospect, that we should have said at the beginning uh, they should be allowed to run. It's also true that, I'm sorry, we should have said being there, you should not be allowed to run because because they weren't willing even to say, uh, okay, we'll go for for politics. Now, after they won, there were a lot of efforts to get them to say, well, now you won. So now it really is in your interest to give up on the terrorism stuff. Um, The Russians, for example, talked to them, uh, some in the European Union, and uh, it would have made life very hard for the American government had... Hamas leaders thought, you know, this is smart. Why don't we say, well, yeah, ultimately, ultimately we'll give up our arms. Um, Who's to define ultimately? Um, They wouldn't budge an inch. It's sort of interesting because they were not corrupt, neither financially nor intellectually. They said, forget it. We're not, this is who we are, armed struggle. Um, so that, in a sense, made it easier for us. Didn't, didn't, the, didn't the U.S. government also try, essentially, to foment something of a, a factional struggle by arming uh, parts of Hamas to try to get them to dislodge by force no. the government? No, that's not true. Um, what we did over time, remember, this election is January 2006. The United States began to build Palestinian police forces, 500 men at a time, at a training center in Jordan. And the first class was January 2008. So the Hamas coup against, you know, an American effort Mm -hmm. couldn't possibly have been against that because it happened in June 2007. So it was was before it. No, in fact, there was some discussion of a deal. Mm -hmm. That is, um, what if Hamas were to appoint as ministers? I should say in the election... Uh, they were very smart. They didn't run people who had, you know, who had, uh, who were shooters. They ran, if you will, fellow travelers, doctors, lawyers, engineers, who, pharmacists who were more or less Hamas supporters, but not members of the of the group. What if they did that for for ministers? Mm-hmm. Maybe they could name some people who the um, the Palestinian Authority. And the Israelis and we would say, you know, he's a decent person. Maybe we could have done it that way. They didn't, they didn't do it. They wouldn't name those people. It never came through. So we ended up in a, in a situation, that's January 2006, for a year and a half in which um, there was a non-working government. I mean, there was a Hamas prime minister, but the parliament never met, as I recall, not even one time. And um, 
the Hamas Fatah fight moved from ballots to bullets, right. and they kept killing each other um, intermittently. They're killing truce, killing truce. The uh, violence really stepped up in 2007, and then ultimately leads to the Hamas takeover. We, we were mostly talking about the Middle East, and we also there's some other ground I want to cover. Before we do, you worked on Latin America in the 80s. I did. And, you know, this is during the Cold War. There's a, it's a completely different context. Um, there was efforts on the part of the United States government to support uh, those who were fighting Marxist or communist uh, uh, forces who were aligned with the Soviets or Cuba. Uh, what do you think, how do you see the legacy of those efforts you mentioned Chile earlier, right. um, but more broadly, this, this was a really kind of searing issue in yes. American politics. It was largely receded, um, and I, I, I wonder, looking back on it now, how do you see the legacy of, of that? Well, you know, you're asking somebody, I'm not completely unbiased on this That's question. That's why I'm asking. Right. Um, I think it looks great in retrospect. Ronald Reagan comes to office and Virtually every country in Latin America is a military dictatorship. What are the exceptions? Costa Rica, Venezuela at that point? Mm-hmm. That's it. Literally, that's it. And Mexico was not was a dictatorship but not a military, military dictatorship. Yeah. Um, and over the course of his eight years, um, this really begins to change in Brazil, in Argentina, in Uruguay, uh, in Colombia, in Chile, which we had something to do with, in Paraguay, which is really the next George H.W. Bush administration. Um, in El Salvador, I was on a campus recently and a, and a student got up and said, you know, how can you defend the destruction of El Salvador? And I said, what are you talking about? We came in when there was a military dictatorship, which had been given military aid by the Jimmy Carter administration. And we support an election and the Christian Democrats win and it turns into a democracy. And it is a democracy to this day, uninterrupted, 2018. And by the way, the communist guerrillas were the FMLN, who did turn in their arms, turned into a political party, and they won. And the president's an FMLN guy. What are you complaining about? So I think if you look back at South America and Central America, um, it worked pretty well. It didn't work perfectly. I mean, Nicaragua is moving in the direction of dictator, is a dictatorship now, I'd say. But aren't the um, complaints sometimes about the costs? I mean, let, let's talk about Guatemala, for example. Guatemala... Uh, you know, in the early 80s, you and others back uh, Rios Mont, the, the, the right. comes to power in a coup. I mean, Rios Mont has since then been tried right. and convicted for, for genocide, for crimes against humanity. I mean, he's, but, he's, yeah. he's so, I mean, but you know, start back. Right. So but, we come to office and there is what was known as Lucas Garcia dictatorship, unbelievably bloody dictatorship which we help force out. And yeah, Rios Montt does a coup. It's a good coup to get rid of these unbelievable murderers. And Rios Montt, we thought, who was a kind of evangelical preacher, we thought was in fact going to stop all of this. But that turned out to be wrong. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't take the view that obviously that, you know, uh, the policy was correct in every way in every country in Latin America. Um, Rios Montt, initially presented as a decent person and a reformer. Mm-hmm. And I do not think we had real-time information about uh, some, at least, of the human rights abuses that he was committing. I think it's also true, you know, I need to be careful. I mean, for example, Ronald Reagan, after all, replaced Pinochet. Well, that's not true. The people of Chile replaced Pinochet. We helped. Mm-hmm. We helped push him out. I mean... The people of the Philippines got rid of Marcos. We helped. So 
you know, there's a tendency um, overemphasize, yeah, yeah, the sure. American role. But it's also true that you know there was not violence in El Salvador, terrible violence. Mm-hmm. There was not terrible violence in Guatemala because of the United States. I don't think that's true either. Countries do have histories; they do have political cultures. Costa Rica and Nicaragua are completely different, and that's not because of the United States. Fair enough. Let's, uh, let's pivot to the, to the present day a little bit. Um, we've, we've so far avoided talking about that, um, partially by design, uh, <laughs> but we need to. Um, last May, uh, you published in, in Foreign Affairs an article that I found sort of strangely persuasive, almost against my, my better instinct. Uh, it was called, I, now I edited the article, so that may have something to do with it, but it was called Trump the Traditionalist, a Surprisingly Standard Foreign Policy. And I want to read the conclusion of that article. Again, this is a year ago, last May, and this was the Seems last... to me we're out of time. <laughs> Here it goes. Every administration's policies are a combination of the old and the new. In Trump's case, the expectation was that the mix would change a great deal more of the new and a broad rejection of the foreign policies of Trump's recent predecessors. That was certainly the impression left by Trump's rhetoric. But his foreign policy and his national security appointees have so far pointed in a mostly conventional direction. Of course, this could change. But based on early impressions, the Trump era will be marked more by increasing adherence to traditional U.S. foreign policy positions than by ever larger deviations. Still true? Um, Less clearly true, I'd say. I think basically true in the sense of, you know, broadly What do I mean? Broadly, um, we have an alliance with Japan, Australia, South Korea. Um, We are building relationships with countries near China that fear China. That includes those countries, Vietnam, India. Um, We have NATO alliance, which, though the president initially spoke against it, it's now reaffirmed. We have have, um, stationed troops forward near the near the Russian border. Um, I mean, the broadest, in the broadest lines, the foreign policy that we're familiar with is, is still there. And some of the changes um, take the... We don't know where we're going to end up on the JCPOA, the nuclear deal with Iran. If I were guessing, I'd say the president will, will get out of it. Really? Uh, yeah, but that's just a guess. Um, but I could argue, I think, that it's actually the JCPOA that was a deviation. First of all, it wasn't a treaty, which it should have been. Congress never really got to vote on it. Um, and it made, in my view, uh, far too many concessions, concessions that another president, a President Clinton, in my view, would not have made. Um, I think, I think the, the, the question now is whether, um, well, I, I should say, so I think the president's rhetoric, as I already said in the article, I mean, the rhetoric right. and the policy uh, can be distinguished. Um, now, maybe this will change. Uh, what does the firing of Rex Tillerson portend? Don't know. Um, will H.R. McMaster also leave? And who replaces him? Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we'll know, obviously we'll know a lot more soon. I mean, we'll know a lot more by the end of the summer, I would think, as to whether the, that view is starting to look quite wrong. Let me ask you about the Iran nuclear deal, because you brought it up, I wasn't intending to, but you said that you think it's likely that the president will try to scrap it or get out of it. How do you negotiate a nuclear deal with North Korea that there's just no way it's going to be any better yeah. or different than no, that? No, I, I don't agree with that, for one reason. 
The reason that the president can get out of the nuclear deal is that Barack Obama made the first, first ever big arms control negotiation that wasn't a treaty. That's the mistake. Now, he couldn't have gotten it through Congress. Why is that? Because a lot of Democrats would have voted against it and said so publicly. This is the first time we had a big arms control deal that wasn't a treaty, and it should have been a treaty. And if it were a treaty, then you'd have much greater constraint on subsequent presidents. It would be binding. It'd be the law of the land. You couldn't just say, I'm out. I guess what I mean is, politically, how do you make the case that, oh, we should make a deal with North Korea that is probably going to look a lot like the deal we made with Uh, Iran while saying that the deal with Iran is no good? Well, I don't think... I don't... I would say the president will not and should not make as bad a deal as I really do believe the nuclear deal with Iran is, because I do think it lays out a path for an Iranian nuclear weapon. What the administration is now saying uh, to the North Koreans now uh, is um, denuclearization is the goal. Mm -hmm. That's what we're going for here. We're not going to sign a deal that says you can only have 100 uh, nuclear weapons denuclearization. That's what we're after. And the likelihood of that? I don't, you know, um, is it impossible? I guess not. My own view, um, what sustains that government, at least in the mind of of Kim Jong-un, probably correctly, um, is having nuclear weapons. What is left of that regime without nuclear weapons? Probably, Mm -hmm. you know, poverty and repression. Um, So I I guess I'd say it's unlikely, but you know, the what if you could get, this is the critical thing, China. All their trade, 90%, I think that's the correct number, is with China. Right. If the Chinese ever could be persuaded somehow that... Um, this is their problem. As well as ours. Yeah. Yeah. Then, then you might be able to achieve it. We haven't, no president's been able to do that yet. What about Trump and the issues of human rights and democracy that you have worked so hard for? Yeah. And, and, you know, this is, this is a core, core concern. How would you rate the administration so far on those issues? Badly. Um, the, president, the president sees a Hobbesian world out there, which I think is right. I mean, a, a, um, a highly competitive um, world. Um, and therefore concludes, uh, look, we don't have the luxury. You know, we've got We're competing with China, we're competing with Russia, we're competing with Iran, we've got um, Islamic, um, we've got Islamist extremism. Uh, Human rights is nice, but but we've got serious problems out there. I think that that's wrong. And the reason it's wrong is his, his error, I think, is failing to see that one of our greatest assets in that competition is the association of the United States with freedom and the promotion of, of uh, democracy. And um, I would say if you, if you looked at the, there were two or three times, his, uh, a speech at state, a confirmation hearing, uh, Secretary Tillerson tried to wrestle with it too. And I would say he didn't get it quite either. So um, my hope is that, you know, as time goes on, uh, for example, Pompeo, assuming he is confirmed, would get it. That is, that this is not a problem. This is an asset for the United States. You brought it up. And before we go to the, the audience questions, I am going to ask you, what happened with Rex Tillerson? Uh, the, the, the audience knows, most of the audience knows probably that at one point uh, he had hoped for you to be his deputy uh, secretary of state. Uh, Trump nixed that idea, apparently. Um, what insight can you give us onto, onto what went wrong? Because I think the consensus view, at least as far as I can tell, is that this was uh, not a particularly successful tenure. Yeah. Um, well, 
I mean, you know, in one level, I don't know. But um, I'm struck by the fact that um, compare him to his probable successor, Mike Pompeo. Pompeo is a congressman <coughs> who has never led an agency before, but he sure knows how government works. And he goes over to CIA and figures it out, figures out the politics and the internal politics, and basically by saying to the people at CIA, you are my people now, help me. Um, and Secretary Tillerson had never been near the U.S. government. He'd been the head of a giant corporation, but he hadn't spent a day in the U.S. government. He had no um, uh, political skills. Um, and he seems to have um, largely sealed himself off from the FSOs, from the staff of the Foreign Service officers, staff of the department. So morale was, was bad. He also made a fatal error, I think, that um, somebody should have told him, don't do this. Which is? He began by saying, I'm going to have a big reorganization. And all that does is, first of all, everybody in the department immediately says, ah, don't do it. Um, And you waste a lot of time on it. Pompeo, when he went to CIA, was faced with the reorganization plan that James Clapper had developed. And he immediately said, forget it, junk. And everybody in the building in, in Langley said, oh, terrific. So... Um, I think Pompeo would be wise to take Tillerson's reorganization plans and say, forget it. Hmm. We'll see whether he does that. Uh, let's go to some of these questions. We've got some great questions here from the audience. Um, I'm going to ask this one first because it, it mentions uh, a country that we did, I did not and I think was a, lacking. Uh, here's the question. Uh, do you think it is hypocritical for the United States to ally itself with Saudi Arabia hmm. while at the same time vilifying Iran. Why or why not? Yeah. I, um, <clears throat> first, we're always going to have allies who are not Democrats. You know, uh, one of my favorite phrases in the book is a government is not an NGO. Um, and we have security interests, we have financial interests, we have commercial interests, and so on. So we don't have the luxury of saying, if you're not a democracy, we're not interested. In the case of Saudi Arabia and Iran, I would make this distinction. I think the government of Iran is completely illegitimate. I think that the people of Iran never chose Veliati Faki, ruled by uh, the Ayatollahs. I think that if, uh, I think they have stolen a whole series of elections. I think that we have seen the people of Iran rise up, first in 79, but 2009, now more recently, because they hate that government. I don't think the people of Saudi Arabia generally hate their government. I think it is a kind of legitimacy that we don't happen to like and have in the U.S., monarchic legitimacy. I think there's a fair amount of it. It's not a coincidence that in the Arab Spring, no monarchy was overthrown, because I think monarchies in the Arab world have, in varying degrees, but have substantial legitimacy. But isn't part of their legitimacy our support? I'm not so sure of that. And I think you could actually create a form of legitimacy that is against the imposition of those horrible... Americans. Um, No, I think, and I think right now, what's striking is, I was in Saudi Arabia in January, there's a fair amount of enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the first time, the person who's essentially ruling is not 90, Um, and it's a very young population. You know, if I remember right, the average age is about 30 in Saudi Arabia. Um, And for the first time, when you talk to Saudis, they have this sense, things are getting better. Um, Okay, women are going to be able to drive this summer, big deal. It's symbolic. But women I talked to said, yeah, 
That is symbolic. But the guardianship laws, which mean I have to get my father's... That's real. That's next. And I do actually think that's next. Um, I was very struck. I I tried to make trouble in Saudi Arabia. And in three separate meetings, I said, you're introducing VAT, value-added tax, uh, this spring. You know, we have this American phrase, no taxation without representation. You're asking people to be citizens. Go out and work. Get a job. Don't wait for the oil handout. Uh, Work in the private sector. Pay taxes. Don't you think the people of Saudi Arabia are likely to start asking for a role in governing the country? And rather to my surprise, in three out of three meetings, including with some high-ranking people, the answer was, yes, it's it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Um, And I think it is inevitable. And and I, I may be wrong about the whether this reform will continue to go forward, but I'm uh, optimistic about it, and I think we should be supporting it. I wish there were such a reform to support in Iran. I'm going to ask one last follow-up on that, because, you know, there is enthusiasm, there's support for this. There's also this strange uh, sort of anti-corruption crackdown. Well, it isn't isn't strange. I mean, what what he's doing, uh, the model may be Xi Jinping, which is a terrible model from this point of view. That is... I'm a reformer. I'm going to do social reform. I'm going to do religious reform. I got a lot of people in the royal family who don't like it. I got all these uh, imams who don't like it. Um, so I need to have pretty rigid control. Um, I, I think, I mean, I understand why he would come to that conclusion. It strikes me that maybe he does need to have rigid control of the, the, the imams and the royal family. It does cut against but, the idea of reform and liberalism. Right. And I mean, yeah. and, and I mean, just take an example. Why is he doing the women can drive? Partly for the West, I think, partly for mm-hmm. symbolic reasons. Remember uh, Rafe Badawi? This is the guy who was a blogger who gets sentenced to a 1,000 lashes. And they administered about, I think, 50. And then doctors said, stop. He's still in prison. Pardon him. Pardon him. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want to talk about good symbols that things are beginning to change? He's not done any of that. And did you tell, did, was that advice you gave when you were there? It is advice I how did, gave. How was it received? It was received with a thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I think it's good advice. And I wish the United States government were giving that advice. Uh, I'm ask this next question. Uh, it goes like this. Why does <clears throat> Israel, another country we didn't talk too much about, not get any credit for leaving Gaza? Mm. And take that as a lesson for being reluctant to withdraw from occupied territories. Well, it is, it is a lesson all is, Israelis draw. Uh, and what you hear from them is, we got out of South Lebanon and we got Hezbollah. We got out of Gaza and got Hamas and rockets. And um, now you're telling us, get out of the West Bank. But the West Bank is too important, um, both religiously and economically and from a security point of view. Um, you know, I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, I think it's the correct argument. That is, they did get out of Gaza. People say, well, they didn't really get out because they surround Gaza. No, they don't. This is border with Egypt. The Egyptians could open that border and keep it open 24 hours a day, and they don't. Um, and why don't they? Because they don't like Hamas, and they don't like the arms going in and out um, through um, Gaza. Um, so I tend to think that the reason the Israelis don't get any credit for it is generally the reason they don't get much credit for anything. That is, there's an, there is a, an unfair standard of conduct 
that is applied to Israel, particularly in the U.N.? Let me, let me push against that answer, though, because you, you seem to suggest that the lesson they should draw is that don't withdraw. Is that, do you want to extend that logic and simply say well, Israel should not withdraw from the West Bank, full stop? Uh, Look what happened. I think we go back in a little bit, a little bit to my comment on chaos at the beginning. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the question is not whether you should withdraw. It is if you withdraw, what happens? Um, now, they obviously didn't think that any of this would happen. They didn't think Hezbollah would take over. Uh, everybody thought the PA would be able to maintain control of Gaza. Um, I remember talking to the Egyptians at that point who absolutely were certain. that. Right. Um, so the question really is what happens if they leave? If, what happens if the Israelis withdraw all of their forces from the West Bank? Um, the answer, I think, is Hamas takes over. Uh, unless it's unless it's ISIS and groups worse than Hamas, which is why I mean I think that there is there is a delusion in the United States that if Netanyahu steps down and is replaced by let's say a centrist like Yair Lapid mm-hmm. or the Labour Party, um, Abi Gabay, um, that Israeli policy on the West Bank would go right. change from from black to white. Uh, it'll change from terrible to good. It'll change from you know, it won't. Because there's a consensus in Israel that you can't get out of the West Bank unless you know, with a good deal of certainty, who will maintain order and defeat terrorism. Now, my own conclusion is that there is only one possible, well, there are two possible answers to that, Israel and Jordan. And I do not think, and I think we saw this in Gaza, that the Palestinian Authority is strong enough to prevent terrorists from taking over the West Bank. Um, which is why I'm really quite a pessimist. Uh, yeah, it sounds like what you're saying, it, the short version of what you're saying is that the traditional understanding, the conventional understanding of the two-state solution is, is dead. That, that's the extension of what you're um, saying. I think it's... Um, dead is a strong word. Uh, it's, uh, in, it's in big trouble. I mean, I've, I told the Obama uh, transition team when they came in and the same conversation with the Trump team, you're going to try, that's great, but I'm a pessimist because I think, in truth, um, the security problem can, assuming you want the Israelis to leave the West, most of the West Bank anyway, 90% of the West Bank, which I do, the security problem can only be solved by Jordan. So my own view, and, and my previous book was actually about this, right. my own view is that in the end, uh, there can be a Palestinian entity, I call it kind of like Austria-Hungary, you will have the king, you'll have two prime ministers and two parliaments, but you'll have the king and one army keeping uh, order and preventing terrorism. How likely do you think that is? I think uh, the likelihood, this is 2018, yeah. the likelihood, let's say, the next few years is zero. Um, but I think if you come back in 25 years, that's what you'll have. Hmm. Stay tuned. We'll come back in 25 years. I'll check <laughs> Uh, here's another question. This is an interesting, this is more of a, almost like a political philosophical question, which is good because your book does, in fact, deal quite uh, directly with that. Uh, the audience member wants to know, can democracy as we know it, and in parentheses has put majority rule, which is yeah, part of democracy, function without the concept of inalienable rights? And the second part of the question is, did the Arab Spring protesters believe in such rights? This, if I'm going to, yeah. I'll, I'll translate a little bit, which is this is a question about do you have to have liberal values yeah. in order to have a genuine democracy? Well, I, I would say there's two questions here. That's okay. one. The yeah. other is 
what do we mean by democracy? And I think um, we don't mean majoritarianism. We don't mean if you get 51% of the vote, do whatever you want. We mean what, or we should mean, what we mean, if you will, in the West. That mm-hmm. is to say, we mean um, independent systems of courts. We mean inalienable rights. We mean constitutions that define those rights. Um, we don't just mean free elections. Um, now, it, uh, and we don't, often, we don't often enough make that clear. And I think you cannot have the kind of system that we would all like to see uh, spread um, if you just have majoritarianism and you don't have the, the full panoply of what we think of as Western democratic um, systems. Um, and one of the problems here, now what did the people who wanted the Arab Spring, who did the Arab Spring want? It varies. Some of the people who wanted the Arab Spring, for example, were um, Islamists who think, take, go back to Egypt, can women, could a woman be president of Egypt? Of course not. Could a Christian Copt be president of Egypt? Of course not. Um, so they're in, we would say they're not Democrats uh, because they don't want to treat the people of the country equally under law. I mean, the shorthand for what we, the system we have, liberty under law. Um, and it's going to vary. I mean, another key thing here is uh, how divided is the society? It's not so strange that Tunisia is the one country that makes it because it's completely homogeneous. They don't really have much in the way of tribes. Everybody's a Sunni Arab. Compare Iraq, Sunni, Shia, uh, Kurd, I mean, uh, Christians, a few. Um, Tunisia is much more homogeneous. After so much pessimism in your presentation, are you optimistic about Tunisia? I am. I mean, one of the reasons is that... that, um, the help they need, it would be just nuts for us not to give them the help they need. Egypt has 95 million people. So, you know, that's expensive. Yeah. Tunisia is a little country. So we and uh, some of our friends in the Arab world and uh, particularly in the EU should be, and I think we are. I mean, we've been pretty good on giving them the uh, financial help they need. So far, so good. And I'm very struck. Uh, I have friends who disagree with this entirely, but I'm very struck by the role played by the Islamist party, Enada and its leader, Sheikh Ghanouchi, uh, who seems to be a real Democrat and has actually said, <laughs> you can accuse him of, of cynicism or something, but has actually said, you know, they won the first election, they didn't win the second, they left power. Yep. And he said, you know, it's more important that Tunisia be a democracy than that my party rule. And our job uh, is not to use the power of the state to enforce our Islamist views. It is to persuade people this is how you should live voluntarily. That's terrific. I mean, you know, that reminds us of Christian democracy in Europe after World War II. They're now calling themselves Muslim Democrats instead yeah. of political Islamists. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, if that spreads, that would be greatly beneficial. Yeah. I'm going to do one more of these uh, questions. This is actually just sort of a, 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 an open-ended question, but it's one that, that I could have asked you, and I'm interested to hear what you say. What do you believe, it's very simple, what do you believe is the most pressing issue facing the Middle East today? What's number one on the list? I have a great sort of traditional neocon answer. You'll be great. Please, we end up where we started. Um, Iran. I mean, I think, you know, the, the great wave of terrorism in the world really starts in 1979, partly, largely, um, because of what happened. I mean, the takeover in Iran by the uh, 
like Khomeini. Um, I think Iran now in playing a terrible role in in Yemen, in Bahrain, in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, uh, in Gaza, um, as well as repressing the people of Iran. So um, we used to think, I didn't, but I think it was conventional wisdom that it was Israeli-Palestinian dispute. I think very few people believe that now. I think um, if Iranian foreign policy changed, the Middle East would be a much more peaceful place. How do we make that happen? How does, how does, does, and can the United States make that happen? Or is it something that has to come from within? Or, well, how do you get that? The Iranian people would like to do it. I am absolutely persuaded that if there were ever a free election, say a referendum on Veliat Rifaki, it would be gone. And if there were even a free election, different people would be winning, uh, would be, say, running for president. We know that for a fact because they're constantly being disqualified by the assembly of experts, so-called. How do we make it happen? Well, we can't make it happen. Um, but we can help. And the way to help, I think, is to talk a great deal more about human rights in Iran and give a great deal more help to Iran. I'm, 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 talking, about, I'm talking about things like um, broadcasting. Our Persian language broadcasting is terrible. Iranians listen to BBC and to the Israeli Persian language service, not to VOA, um, which is just not very good. Um, more support, financial support, laundered, as it would have to be, for Iranian um, human rights groups uh, and pro-democracy groups. I think we missed a bet, particularly in 2009, in not being much more vocal in our support uh, for that um, green revolution, that uprising. Um, that's not going, you know, it's, it's maybe marginal. It's not uh, going to bring about a change. But I, I would say, just think, think about Ronald Reagan and the Soviet Union. Um, he was helpful in bringing down the Soviet Union. We didn't have a war. How did he do it? Three things. Ideological warfare. Um, various forms of economic warfare, sanctions. Um, and delivering defeats instead of permitting victories in proxy wars in the third world. In the Reagan case, Afghanistan. We are not doing that um, so far. But I think if we adopted that trio... Maybe the day in which that regime falls, and it will fall someday, uh, maybe it just comes closer. That is a good traditional neocon answer. It's it a good note on which to end. <laughs> Thank you so much, Elliot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.